This podcast is brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Viz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Civic Tech in Africa podcast. I am your host, Natim Tejwab, and thank you for joining us for yet another episode. I want to welcome my co-host for today's episode, uh, Jason Bygate. Jason is the head of innovation, tech, and data for development at Capacitate Social Solutions, and he's recently launched the Your Movie platform in partnership with uh, PwC and UDSurf. Jason, could you tell us briefly about uh, what it is that you seek to do with this platform? Hi, Nati. Uh, many thanks and uh, great to be back. Uh, Yomobi is the second of our platform cooperatives that we've launched. As you know, most of our work is focused on technology solutions for civil society. And in particular, we look to help organizations bridge the digital divide that uh, increasingly manifests at an organizational level. So the Yomobi platform is a multi-tenant platform that was designed to help youth organizations improve their program delivery. And through Yomobi, we provide a suite of digital tools that support their migration towards digital youth work. Mm. And uh, we're planning to launch a range of additional tools to support that focus uh, from our side. Today, we're talking about an initiative aimed at boosting civic participation in issues of democratic governance on the African continent. Justin Aronson will share and talk to me about how much progress has been made in implementing the recommendations of the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance across the continent. And then talk some more about uh, the newest efforts they've spearheaded to ensure the adoption and implementation of the Charter's objectives. My guest today, as you might have guessed, is Justin. Justin Aronston. Uh, Justin is an award-winning journalist and media strategist who works with partners across Africa to help strengthen investigative reporting, while also helping civic watchdogs adopt new technologies and build stronger business models. He's also the founder and executive director of Code for Africa, one of the consortium members of the Charter Project Africa. Gentlemen, welcome to the Civic Tech in Africa podcast. Before we start, Justin, tell us a little bit about the work that you do with uh, Code for Africa. Happy to do that. So Code for Africa is a non-profit. We are um, currently a full-time staff and labs, uh, tech labs, in 21 African countries. It's a fairly uh, kind of mature organization. It's been around for 11 years. Our primary role is as a ideas kind of catalyst. What we do is we identify kind of um, emerging leapfrog ideas or technologies that can help improve either civil society's kind of voice and reach and, and ability to create evidence or the media's ability to do the same. And we then help organizations implement those. So we do that through um, grant making. We do it through incubation. And in fact, we've seed funded many of the civic technology organizations that you're probably familiar with on this podcast. So everything from giving the original seed grants to open up in South Africa, supporting Open Cities Lab when it was still called Open Open Durban, I think it was, and a whole bunch of others going back 10 years. And what we do is we leverage basket funding from a bunch of of your more traditional donors, so kind of Open Society Foundations, the Gates Foundations and their ilk, Mm. alongside some more institutional partners, such as key movers in the space, like the World Bank and the IMF, alongside the platforms, Google, Twitter, uh, Microsoft, and the others. And we create basket funds that effectively neutralizes their individual agendas. And then we re-grant that money to people doing 
fairly risky things. So we funded, for example, some of the very first scaled use of civic drones on the continent to do mapping, to do kind of frontline conflict reporting, to do evidence collection for things like environmental crimes and so forth. And we've created a continental drone network out of that. We help pioneer the use of citizen um, evidence collection with um, remote sensors, so air, water, sound sensors, as well as even radiation sensors. In places where no evidence exists, we give communities both the hardware tools the data skills to understand the evidence collected, and then we connect them with advocacy or media organizations to turn that information into action. That's now resulted in the largest air quality sensor network across the continent as well. And we also build infrastructure, the kinds of things that no individual advocacy or media organization should have the burden of building. We almost think of it as building the railways, you know, if you will, across continents that others can then build on top of. So we built and we maintain the largest uh, non-government uh, data portal in Africa, for example, Open Africa, as well as the largest repository of documentary evidence, something called um, sourceafrica.net. And in addition to that, we also then inject technologists because most of our 100 plus staff are either data scientists or, or hardware software technologists. We inject these people into organizations or embed them into organizations to help build systems inside partner organizations. And these are usually frontline human rights defending organizations or where we work with governments, we work primarily with treasuries because they sit on you know, kind of the most rich and meaningful data in government implementation. And then alongside that, we work with national statistical organizations. So for example, we help the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics pioneer open data standards and an open data team and build an open data portal. Or in Kenya, we work with the Kenyan National Bureau of Statistics and we help them use air quality sensors, to include that in the national census for the first time in Africa. Right. So you can match air quality against kind of health metrics as, as just two examples. We also work in support of things like the MRC, MRC in Medical Research Council in South Africa and others. So it's a fairly broad-based portfolio. Originally, we grew out of an investigative data journalism program. So we pioneered Panama Papers in Africa as, as just one example. And learning from that, we then launched our into, into a broader kind of definition of civic technologies. What would you say has been your, what are your biggest successes uh, doing all this work right now? There are literally hundreds of projects. So I think that the biggest success is probably our success at building an ecosystem. Very early on, we understood that none of these problems are solvable by any one organization or even one consortium or network. And so we focused all of our work on creating multifaceted transnational ecosystems, bring together entrepreneurial developers, people like Greg Kemp, for example, who was with Amazon at one stage, and kind of help them almost exit the kind of the corporate world and get into a space where they can build something more meaningful. And so kind of underwrite those very early projects around open bylaws in South Africa. And that eventually grows into a transnational initiative to digitize legal court and policy documents at a continental level. And that wouldn't have been possible if there wasn't an enabling ecosystem around it and partnerships and support agencies. And so what we focused on is almost 
building ecosystems, if you think about them as the plumbing or the electronics in the wall that allow people to plug their projects into the available infrastructure to do stuff that matters. That's the boring kind of engineering on the back end. Secondly, building sustainable business models around this stuff. All too often this work in the for good space is dependent on donor grants. And donor grants come with massive kind of ideological strings that are attached. So we've worked very hard at building kind of um, sustainable revenue kind of focused hybrid business models for people in this space. Everything from knowledge products through to actual data or, or kind of software as a service kind of solutions. And we've been fairly successful at doing that with many of our partners. In addition to what the, the work you're doing now, you're, you're also working with the Chatter Project Africa. Uh, and today we are talking about the, the Civic Tech Fund Africa. Could you tell me about that process? I know that the fund targets young African innovators who want to use technology to enhance public participation and democratic processes. We've got an Africa has for a very long time had some of the world's best constitutions and best policies on various issues. And the reason for that is that Many of our countries are new or many of our transnational or continental organizations are pretty new. They base their policy guidelines on the most progressive emerging standards. The problem has always been implementation and resourcing. The Charter Project, which is led by the European Partnership for Democracy and it's funded by the European Commission, has partnered with the African Union and specifically its kind of governance structures and initiatives to figure out how we can turn some of these very worthy ideas into tangible things and tools that people could use. And one of the things that we're doing is supporting a, a seed fund mechanism that gives organizations that have got strong ideas and want to build digital engagement with citizens that can move the needle on specific issues and connect them both with seed funding, but more importantly, also connect them with technologists or with strategists that they might not ordinarily be able to afford or have access to. And the idea behind doing that is money is not always a solution. Right. And often it means that you just build an app or a website that no one ends up using. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is connect them with people who've been there, done it, made the mistakes, and who are not trying to sell them a product or a solution. Connect them with these people, help them figure out whether the idea is something that would work in a digital format or whether they should rather use their resources and do something non-digital, that it would have more impact. So it's not turning digital into a fetish, in other words. It's trying to figure out, is this the real solution? And then secondly, tap into the experience and the, the networks of these strategists. What they're intending to do is the best way to do it based on how others have implemented and the mistakes and the lessons that they've learned from. So I think that's the program in a nutshell. And the Charter Project has a remit or a mandate to assist people across 11 countries in a deep way. But this fund tries to go beyond that. And we're looking for really smart ideas and talented people beyond this kind of basket of 11 countries. The key thing here is that we're looking for projects that can elevate the voice and the influence of normal citizens. So how can normal citizens help shape the laws or implementation of programs in their countries? And then because of the nature of citizenhood in Africa, the vast bulk of people tend to be youth. So how can we give them a voice that can be heard 
that is evidence-based. It's not just people making a loud noise. Right. It's people who can put real evidence down on a table and pragmatic solutions for those in power, both in politics as well as in corporate and commercial life, to take cognizance of, to hear what the youth are saying, but then potentially to co-implement with youth. Just to jump in there, Nati, I've got about 350 questions for Justin. The discussion around um, building out ecosystems and supporting innovation and development across civil society is one that resonates really strongly with me. And certainly in looking at moving beyond this uh, field of dreams notion when it comes to technology, we've certainly seen it quite a bit in our space where there are organizations and innovators that build technologies and then think that they'll magically be used and adopted. There certainly isn't any truth to the thought that if you build it, they will come. But I'll try to constrain my questions just around the charter project in particular and specifically around the selection of those entrepreneurs What are the characteristics that you're looking for as part of this innovation? So as you're looking at social entrepreneurs, what is more important to you? The great innovation and the idea, or is it the entrepreneurial spirit that you're looking for as qualities in these grantees? Firstly, you need to have an entrepreneurial mindset, even if you're in the nonprofit sector. You need to be creative and problem-solving about the issue that you're trying to tackle. And often the solution is not head-batting and kind of banging your head on the wall, it's figuring out a way over or around or under that wall. And so we're looking for creative digital ideas that are firstly feasible within a fairly modest budget. The grants are not, you know, we're not talking about um, hundreds of thousands of dollars per grantee. So firstly, it's within a modest budget. And secondly, it's also with using appropriate technologies for the communities that are, or the problem that is being tackled. And the reason here is that we can all get super excited about you know, augmented realities or virtual reality or blockchain and the rest of it. But the reality is that on the ground for solutions that are trying to address mass audiences, often those are not appropriate solutions right now. They might yeah. be in the next five years. So the first, the first thing is appropriateness and feasibility. The second thing is we're not necessarily looking for brand new ideas. We're looking for appropriate implementations of kind of meaningful technologies. So including even old school technologies like SMS or other ways of reaching a target audience, unless your target audience is a small decision-making elite, if you're talking about just policymakers, for example. So it's appropriate technologies, it's feasibility, it's kind of the strength of the appropriateness of that technical idea. And then we're not looking for people building shiny things. It needs to be more than just an app or just a website or just an artifact, a technology artifact. It needs to be an idea that we can see that there's an adoption or implementation strategy and resources behind. And we don't mind resourcing that kind of adoption phase either. You know, where necessary, we'll make introductions to media or to larger coalitions if people need campaign partnerships. I think you raise a really important point around the shiny new things. Um, And certainly where we've seen, and we've just come off the back of a fair bit of research around how the digital divide manifests at an organizational level, and also the inclination of partners that do have the resourcing to chase after a shiny new thing where they're not necessarily the best informed to make those decisions, don't have the yeah. experience to select appropriate technologies, but are presented with something nice and shiny, invest a whole lot of capital in the development and deployment, and then unfortunately forget about the operating costs, the infrastructure, and yeah. then certainly don't necessarily have the means to 
manage and operate the technologies that they've built or acquired. The operator role is, is a really key one where you have a lot of technologies that could be consolidated and operated collectively, both with a um, an operating model that will achieve economies of scale, but also with governance structures that could ensure that the systems are used for the best value. And in particular, in delivering on civil society objectives and, and broader value for society as it was intended. We spoke to Al Kags in the very first episode of the season. And this is one of the themes that they came out of a couple of discussions around people creating platforms that aren't usable or rather that look fancy on the outside. But when people have to use them, they don't know how to use them. So Al Kags was very specific about it educating people that instead of just creating the app and putting it out and marketing it, there's also an important aspect of educating people and ensuring that the language that you use, for instance, in a platform or in an app is language that people understand. He said, for instance, the English that we speak is English that's very academic. And so most people will use that language on apps and platforms. But the people that we are creating for probably don't understand that type of language. These are some aspects that he was saying, you know, people need to add to, to just creating the shiny platform. So I'm thinking that perhaps this particular program is kind of working on those aspects as well, that it's not just about creating the innovation, but also adding other important elements that make the platforms that we use usable. Correct. And not just at launch either. In addition to the maintenance and the operating requirements, which often consultants who parachute in on these kinds of projects will sell an off-the-shelf product and they'll localize it. But the intention there is to create almost like surfhood, an ongoing contractual relationship because they know the organization won't ever be able to maintain and operate on their own. That's a real consideration. But the other neglected consideration is for any of these things to be meaningful, they need to be driven by granular, hyper-local, hyper-personal data. And I'm not talking about PII, you know, personal identifiable protected data, but data about what's happening in my street, in my village, for it to generate the kinds of actionable insights and information that empower us as citizens. Often that information is simply missing. So we build these very cool technical artifacts and tools, and potentially even there's a knowledge sharing and exchange program that teaches us as an organization how to run this thing. But then there's no gas or no fuel to put into the machine to keep it turning. And often that's why these things turn out to be a waste of money and budgets. So a big piece of our partnership with kind of frontline partners is to help them understand what information or data or other input requirements are needed to turn their app into something that is a crucial decision-making tool for end users. And those end users could be like in L and the Open Institute's case, broad communities, or often the more successful projects are more modest in their, their audience targeting, and they target a smaller category of super users rather than a couple of, you know, a shotgun approach where some people walk past and use this thing on an occasional basis. So it's also really understanding how you can move the needle in terms of whether it's policy change or whether it's service delivery or kind of accountability, how you can move that needle in a mechanical, technical sense is there a digital solution for doing that that's more appropriate than a non-digital solution? And then how do you build that in a way that can keep operating for 10 or 15 years? 
And often it's not the shiny new technologies. I mean, our data portal, for example, runs on CCAN and people sneer at it and say, why haven't you built your own solution? The reality is that we haven't had to do maintenance on that thing for three years. It runs itself. It's solid, stable, mature technologies. We can rather invest any of the budget that goes into that thing into liberating and digitizing new data and mm. keeping data updated. Because often you'll have initial data, but it's obsolete within days, months, or whatever, years. You need to keep that kind of renewal process underway. So as an example, in Nigeria, we work with a community in a place called Makoko, just outside of Lagos. And if you looked a year and a half ago on a Google map, there's a blank spot. There was nothing there. No streets, no houses, no nothing. It's a swamp. Uh, and this is a community that people might know because it's very visual. It's where people live on homes on stilts in the middle of a lagoon. So very picturesque, but they're not on a map. And as a result, people keep on trying to put highways and landing strips and oil refineries on top of them because they don't exist there's no data about that. And so we did a, a very cheap project, a $5,000 intervention with the community. We flew in some drone mappers from Zanzibar. We trained local ground level mappers in canoes with OpenStreetMap. And together they mapped the community with satellite imagery as a third layer on that at a level that within a week, suddenly this was one of the most detailed mapped parts of Lagos City. And then we share that data with planning agencies, with development agencies like the World Bank and IMF, as well as with academia. And suddenly there's way more powerful, nuanced, community-driven development plans and service delivery and infrastructure development happening. But on top of that, you then train activists and journalists to use this. The small drone team that was trained has now become a small commercial team that does drone mapping for development agencies in the area. And you effectively use that initial mapping exercise to create a renewable economy, a micro data economy that others can build on top of. So in addition to the tech and the data and you know, all the technical pieces, a lot of what you do is actually talent scouting and almost matchmaking. You need to match personalities and create chemistry for the stuff to continue happening after the funding disappears. Yeah, I think you raise an important point around that human layer of solutions. So regardless of how amazing the technology is, unless you've got that human layer that can operate it and continue to drive it, the technology can quickly become redundant before it's even fully harnessed. And I think just to pick up on some of your earlier points in, in terms of creating those data ecosystems, that's obviously something that swings both ways. Uh, so in terms of data and privacy and protection of information, there are obviously some growing concerns across the commercial sector, but certainly increasingly within the development sector. What are your opinions about some of the risks and opportunities that exist when it comes to managing user data and using that data that's collected by different people across um, and lots of different devices and through lots of different technologies within the, the context of, of civic tech and in particular when it comes to low resource settings where users are not particularly well educated about the value and importance of their own data. So this is an emerging and fast evolving area of concern, especially as, as machine learning and AI come into, into their own. And a lot of this kind of individual personal kind of user data can be used and can haunt you for your whole life if it's kind of abused. Um, but our guiding principles are firstly, that open data should not be an extractive industry like we've seen with the other resources out of Africa where organizations parachute in, they extract value, and then they almost like use that value against 
the people who it originally belonged to. So firstly, it should not be extractive. There should be a co-creation process. And this, again, echoes the work of many others in the field. You know, Richard at, at um, Open Cities Lab, Owl at Open Institute, the fantastic team at Open Up, and other similar organizations have all got a similar ethos. How you implement that differs from kind of program to program, country to country, and organization. And there's different kind of cultural approaches to it. But secondly, this co-creation piece is crucial because data collection, like engendered data, is often shaped by the data model and the priorities that we bake into that model. And that's often shaped by, you know, usually the middle-aged males who design these things. So you need to ensure that there's good, strong representation from the communities who are surrendering or offering Mm. up this data Mm. and whose livelihoods and futures will be shaped by this data. They need a voice to understand what it's going to be used for, but secondly, to help prioritize what data really matters. And then secondly, they need to help collect that data. It kind of creates a sense of ownership. And that ownership is crucial because what we found is that aside from the security and all the other complex policy issues that usually get used to try and hammer this point, The moment that people understand that there is an intrinsic value in data, either their own personal data or their community's data, then suddenly that proprietary territorial kind of instinct kicks in about quality, control, and appropriate use. We spend a lot of time working with communities, helping them understand the value chain of what data could potentially be used for, whether it's on kind of social media privacy settings or survey data that's being collected, or even using a reporting app like Ushahidi or the equivalents, Mm -hmm. why you need to be careful about and be mindful about what is shared and ensure that it's contextualized. Because any data point without context can obviously be misunderstood and therefore misapplied and misused. So it's the co-creation piece and the extractive piece, I think, that are primary guiding kind of principles. And the easy way that we get people to understand this is just to say to folk, you know, kind of, we have a conversation, we say, what keeps you awake at night? What gives you the cold sweats and nightmares at night? And usually they'll tell us about some existential threat to community or to family, healthcare, or keeping my kids in school, or like this community in Nigeria, just getting access to clean drinking water so we're not dying of cholera and and other things. And that is one way of then saying, well, now can we, it's a way to focus the attention on first data liberation, but secondly, building potential civic tech solutions. Often, technology is not the solution. There is a different type of solution. And so we also are quite robust at pushing people back and saying, don't build an app. Spend that kind of $50,000 on something else that's more meaningful and help them kind of figure out what that might be. The tech piece or the tech solution should almost be the final. We can't solve this in any other way. Let's try and do it through digital. Because as you were saying, Jason, it comes with dependencies and years long commitment to a process and infrastructure. And you're almost locking people in to a journey rather than kind of what they think of as a quick, immediate solution. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to that move towards uh, decolonizing data. So in in having that co-creation and shared ownership function um, embedded within any platform and any data that's generated, I think that's a 
that's a really important progression towards that sense of ownership and, and shared value. I wanted us to talk about the Subitech Fund a little bit more and talk about what you, I know you have a lot of experience in the civic tech sector. To find out what your assessment of the civic sector in Africa is right now, what are you seeing and how much of your assessment played into the design and the launch of the Civic Tech Fund? So I think we've taken a very broad, liberal kind of definition of civic tech. And I think one of the problems around the civic tech sector in Africa is that we're not precise enough with what we mean when we say civic technologies. And so often what we're actually talking about is digital activism or kind of campaign technologies rather than building technical solutions that help empower citizens to deal more evenly with their governments. Um, and GovTech is a completely different sector. And we often conflate those with the kind of the activism and in the media space. We haven't been kind of exclusionary in this program because that's not the purpose here. What we're looking at doing is empowering people to hold the AU and governments to their province promises, but also to open those communication channels between them. In this program, we've kind of included stuff that would not always, strictly speaking, kind of qualify as civic tech itself. It's more kind of accountability technologies, if we want to put a label to it. Mm. Um, the focus here has been on um, finding frontline human rights defending or, or analysis organizations who've already got a really good track record and have been doing really impactful work, potentially in the analog world, and helping them find technical tools that are low-tech, kind of appropriate tech, uh, from an operational cost and implementation or development point of view, but that would supercharge their existing efforts. And then the additional ingredient there is also figuring out things that don't just work in one place. So empowering someone doing something in one place, but that help them build a community of practice or a coalition or a campaign so that the benefits kind of trickle down to multiple organizations. And a good example of a current grantee might be the parliamentary kind of monitoring organization out of Kenya that is getting a grant. So for example, for years, they've already been using my society and, and other kind of existing tech solutions to profile, monitor, and keep accountable elected officials in Kenya. And they mirror the kinds of work that you see happening in South Africa, but also similar efforts in Uganda and elsewhere. And so the grant is firstly to help them perfect some of their fairly aged my society technologies that are no longer maintained by my society and help upgrade that. But secondly, to then work with these other parliamentary monitoring organizations across the continent and figure out common needs so that you're building a little micro ecosystem there of peer support, peer mentoring, but also hopefully co-development of core shared infrastructure because way too often, and I'm sure Jason will be able to support this with lots of his own examples, way too often we're wasting valuable scarce resources rebuilding the same thing over and over and over again unnecessarily rather than using those resources to localize and then to drive adoption and implementation. The money should be going to humans to, to kind of um, the software itself. So on our website, in the, on the civitech.africa website, we have this database and case studies of organizations on the continent who, who are doing great work, really. So we have a big database. And I think one of the, the, the important things we're trying to do with that is 
help people, like you said, not repeat the same mistakes, but also kind of learn what other people are doing. And so I'd encourage people to to go on our website and check those out. It's an yeah. ongoing gardening project that we have to work at constantly. And it changes, you know, you need to give scope for these things to evolve and potentially for projects to pivot or even kind of kill the zombie and kind of move on to something that works better. We invest into the people, not into the apps. Firstly, systems are, are a lot like living things and they need to be constantly evolving and iterating and adapting as they're, as they're being used and, and applied. But also in, in some cases, it's necessary to kill them off because either they've, they're no longer appropriate or they've become redundant and, and you don't need to keep burning resources on things that should be put to bed. Okay, or even just paused and shelved until they become appropriate again. The question was like, what is the metric for success here? is for us the big one would be helping to support the development of an internal real tech capacity within the partner organizations rather than just the success of an app or, or kind of a website or a tool. I mean, obviously that is included in the package, but the bigger priority here is building advanced technical capacity within these organizations, either to make decisions or to create technologies. And I include data as a technology here yeah. within the organization itself. Secondly, to be able to apply that capacity to move the needle in some measurable way. And that's not publicity, but to be able to show that we've actually helped kind of shift perceptions around a policy or an issue, or we've helped change the law or whatever it happens to be. These projects are very different. So there's a kind of, you know, what's meaningful will differ for each of them. Some of them are focused just on elections. So for those projects, we're trying to encourage people to think you know, an election is not an event. An election is what happens for the five years after the, the ballot box. So kind of figure out how you have a sustained impact beyond just the voting on that day. And so it's building those often more difficult to define criteria into a project in a way that kind of the organization owns and kind of feels as part of their DNA. Because if it's imposed from the outside, people just nod their heads, say yes, 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 and then walk away with the money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're fortunate that we're going to have uh, future episodes where we, we talk to some of these initiatives within the project and they'll be telling us about the many things that they're doing. And I know um, just as a last question, so you, your organization Code for Africa, your role in the project is your consortium member, in my understanding is. Uh, could you just tell me a little bit yeah. about, about what that means? So the consortium is interesting. It's brought together people who understand um, digital advocacy, digital policy lobbying. So, you know, kind of how do you change laws? How do you influence parliamentarians? It's brought together a very strong group in Francophone Africa who do youth activization or mobilization and skills development. So this is how you use social media as a digital tool to kind of make voices heard and, and policies changed. Our role has been far more mechanical. Um, we're the technology support partner in the consortium. Right. And so in addition to providing the technologists and the data scientists and kind of the mentors and helping with the project selection alongside some of the other partners, we also are building some of the shared infrastructure that the consortium and the AU itself are using. And one of those things are expanding on the kinds of work that you guys have been doing is building a true commons. Uh, one of our old projects from probably about eight years ago was commons.africa, which is pulling together the source code rather than just spotlighting the projects, but spotlighting the source code, often for modules or widgets that kind of 
are the building blocks that you build a civic tech project out of and the developers behind them. And so we're expanding and refreshing that piece of it. And that's part of the ecosystem building. And then the other thing that we've done with partners across the world, including the Open Knowledge Foundation and various others, has been to build a pattern book of kind of the the thought processes, the recipes, the blueprints that go into designing successful open data or, or kind of civic tech um, solutions. Often it's it's kind of human behaviors. Um, sometimes it's kind of you know, like the technology choices that you need to make and expanding and updating that specifically for an African context. Um, Civic Patterns was originally a global project. So it's building that. And then the third thing would also be building a set of playbooks that people can um, reuse either for implementation or viral kind of deployment or for just understanding the tech stacks that you need to think of. No tool is in isolation. You need to think about the digital foundations that you're going to deploy this tool on. So what other dependencies do you need to have when you deploy whether it's an SMS kind of driven campaign or a newsletter campaign or anything else that you do, apps and websites and data and the rest of it. And often those are the unsexy, unkind of glamorous back-end things that people don't want to think about. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that we're building some of that infrastructure to help people make savvier decisions when they do decide to spend money on technology. I'm going to be putting out your uh, details in the description, so uh, listeners of the show. And we're going to put up uh, your Mobi's work as well. Uh, Thank you for joining us, uh, Justin. It's a pleasure, guys. It's been a cool chat. Go on. That concludes this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast. And please see the episode description for all the places you can follow and engage with the Civic Tech Innovation Network. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vids.